Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. This is Why Food Podcast, the podcast about entrepreneurs, innovators, and creators who have left former careers to join the food, beverage, and hospitality industry. I'm your co-host, Jenny Dorsey. And I'm Ethan Frisch. And today we are super excited to welcome Suzanne Cups, who is the executive chef at Untitled. She started her career as a math major who went into human resources before rising up the ranks and now becoming one of the youngest executive chefs um, in New York. So thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. So we've changed up our uh, first question scenario this <laughs> We're season. We're always changing up our first question. <laughs> um, but you recently told us at lunch that uh, you launched a new menu at Untitled that really feels like it's your personality, really embodies who you are as a chef. Can you tell us more about that, what's on the menu and why it's so important to you? Sure. Um, so yeah, we're excited to launch a new menu at Untitled. Uh, we're located in the Whitney Museum in the Meatpacking District, if you haven't been. Um, and I've just learned uh, over the past few years how I like to eat out. And I think that's uh, really gone into this menu. Um, every time I go out to a restaurant, I want to try as much as possible. And so I find myself always over-ordering, uh, <laughs> wanting to get too many dishes, especially if I'm by myself. Um, and so I really love the idea of small plates, um, which is what we went to, all small plates. And um, they're not too small, like appetizer size, but... Um, it's a great way to to create kind of a more communal environment at, at Untitled. Um, so being able to uh, try something that your friend really wants and you've never had before and vice versa, making her eat something that, uh, you know, she doesn't always love to, to be able to experience new, new flavors and dishes. And, um, and I always feel like, um, you know, with the type of food we do, we, we try to put um, you know, five or six ingredients on the plate because we ha- we work with such awesome farmers and uh, purveyors that we want to highlight that food rather than, uh, you know, mask it. And uh, so I feel like our dishes work better like uh, like that with um, smaller plates. So you get to um, try a few dishes at once. And what are some of the, the dishes that you're most excited about on the new menu? Um, I love our beef tartare. Um, we've got a beef tartare uh, that we're serving with these great cornichons. Um, from Rick at Mountain Sweetberry. I've never even seen um, cornichons grown here before. Um, so we're pickling them, and it's uh, pickled mustard seeds and a kind of a Japanese-style aioli with it um, and flatbread crackers, but it's definitely one of my favorite dishes. Um, and then, let's see, oh, I love the pasta right now. It's the end of end of summer, so we're trying to milk it uh, for all it's worth, and so we've got a corn and uh, tomato pasta. Um, uh, with lobster batarga, uh, which is a really kind of fun and interesting product to work with. Um, so it gives you that craving of seafood that you want with, um, but keeping it pretty vegetable focused. And how would you describe your, your culinary sensibility or your, your philosophy in the kitchen overall? 
Um, in terms of food or <laughs> style? Uh, in food or, or in general, yeah. Sure. Well, in terms of food, um, I definitely uh, love se- serving what's seasonal and local. Um, so we try to really stick with the green market here. Um, in terms of, um, you know, in terms of the way we work in the kitchen, uh, it's definitely, uh, I wouldn't say laid back, but we're, we're a pretty calm team um, and uh, really are relying on the team to kind of help the restaurant run, not just uh, not just me. <laughs> You've said that the menu right now draws a lot of influence from all people on the team. Can you tell us more a little bit more about that and how that creative process works? Sure. I think when you talk about contemporary American food, everybody has um, in, their, uh, in their mind some sort of idea of what that is. Uh, a lot of times that sounds like fine dining. Um, a lot of times it's um, just American inspired, but you know, it, we wanted to bring um, a menu together that represented all the personalities on our team. And we've got a, a great group of cooks that are from everywhere, from all over the world. And um, so they always have ideas of something that their grandma made or something that they grew up eating or a place that they visited. And so um, we're less trying to cook American style food. Um, we're really trying to bring in um, techniques and flavors from all over the world, whether it's Japan or the Middle East or the South, where I'm from. Um, we try to have kind of little tidbits of, of that all, all throughout the menu to, to represent the personalities that we work with. Is there a good way to do that without inspiring that term, like the fusion food yeah. that people hate? <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, I'm not into fusion for our restaurant, <laughs> at least. Um, and so I think the the key is that um, we want to have inspirations. It doesn't mean that it's a, um, you know, for we have a dish that is uh, right now that's with Montauk scallops. Um, and we're making this like coconut lime sauce with it. Um, this local jicama is great. Um, and so it feels a lot like a Caribbean style dish, um, but it's not. It's not at all. Um, it's not at all a typical dish you would find in the Caribbean. So it's those flavors and reminiscent of it without trying to copy recipes from from those cultures. Um, and also, we it, the the produce is so awesome that we're really inspired by the the produce that we work with. We're not. Um, it's it's working with those things that's um, jogging our mem- memory. That's that's um, you know coming up with these dishes. It's not vice versa. It's, oh, we want to make a curry. What can we put in it? It's we've got these great winter squash coming coming up, and and you know curry would be great with with it. So trying to still keep the ingredients as the focus of the plate. And you grew up with a, a pretty food uh, focused family in in certain ways, I guess. Your grandfather had a farm, but but you didn't like to cook. Uh, what what was that? Why didn't you like to cook? And and how did you think about food as a kid? Yeah, I I grew up with my mom cooking dinner every night for us, and we sat around a table um, eating together. And I think that's like the biggest part of um, why I do what I do is is that idea of um, coming together, eating a meal together, and how important that is to catch up with people over food. Um, in terms of actual cooking, yeah, I was not <laughs> I was not a big fan of it growing up, or or really different foods. Um, my grandfather did have an awesome farm in Pennsylvania, and um, and I would ask him like every every time we were visiting uh, for a tomato sandwich. That would be my appetizer every every <laughs> single before lunch, before dinner. He would make me a tomato sandwich with white bread and a little mir- we ate Miracle Whip. Um, uh, and I, I loved the some of the produce um, on the farm, but I just really didn't 
it never occurred to me like, oh, why don't I check out the farm or why don't I learn something about the farm? Um, and my mom um, was the cook in the family. My dad's from the Philippines. And so my mom was the one who cooked um, a lot of Filipino food growing up. And um, it was fine. It was okay. Um, it was food, <laughs> but it wasn't necessarily um, something that I would have ever thought to, to put, a, put as a focus in my life. And so when did that change? When did you start seeing um, food as not only potentially something you could be good at, something you wanted to invest more in, but also as a career? Um, the first time I actually started cooking was in college, like in a dorm room, kind of cooking. And so <laughs> I remember, um, you know, I just, I didn't even like, I wasn't even comfortable with cooking equipment or anything. And so I remember wanting to make brownies one day in my dorm room and there was a kitchen like downstairs, but I was trying to mix them in the dorm room. And I, I went to open a bag of, of brownies and I just kind of like popped it open and, um, and it, exploded all over my room and it had like a, a layer of brownie dust all over the room. That, that was the kind of things that I uh, did as a cook, bisquick and brownie mix. And that, <laughs> so that was, yeah. Um, so those were the kind of things that I explored within in college, my type of cooking, um, you know, things from the can, things from the bag uh, put together. And then when I moved to New York, I just, I really didn't know much about restaurants um, mostly where I grew up, we had chain restaurants and we didn't eat out a ton in restaurants. Um, and so I had no idea of the food scene that was in New York. Um, I remember my first, uh, my first year here, one of my first meals that, um, with my roommate who I barely knew, um, she took us to Lupa and it was a whole group of people and, I remember when the bill came, it was like 40 bucks and I could not believe because I had never spent with my own money, $40 on a meal before. And I was just kind of blown away. Like, why would people do this? Um, and I think that's like part of New York is like, why would you pay this much for this? Why would you pay this much for an apartment? And then you just do it. And then it just gets natural. Oh, this is how much it costs here. But I remember that experience as being such a negative one because it, I don't even, I, I didn't even really care about how the food tasted or, um, it was just really that focused on what, what the price tag was at the end. And, and, um, I also remember another experience, my first year of having sushi and I was not <laughs> a fish eater and, um, but I remember it being one of those like turning points in my mind of like, oh, fish tastes good. Like, <laughs> what is this? I've never had something like this. And I think um, eating out and, and spending more time in New York um, just opened my eyes to like, oh, this is a really cool world. A really cool, um, you know, restaurants are, are pretty amazing. And there's a lot of really um, good food out there. Um, and so I think that was the first time in my life that those things connected in my brain about food and, um, and the rest restaurant industry. Where did you go get sushi? <laughs> I have no idea. I'm sure it wasn't good. Do you remember good. what it, it was? definitely not good. Do you remember what you ate? Uh, it was probably something like, uh, you know, spicy tuna or something, something pretty safe. It was definitely not sashimi or anything like that. Um, and how do you feel like that, those early experiences, especially... Uh, the negative ones, how do you feel like those have shaped your, your career now as a chef running your own restaurant? Um, you know, I think it's when you're, when you're running a restaurant, um, you have to make a decision of what type of food you want to serve. And every restaurant has a different theme, different concept. Everybody, um, you know, I kind of think of it like weddings. Like I, I love going to weddings because I feel like you really <laughs> see the personality of the bride and groom. Like some people spend all their money on flowers. Uh, some people want to get a band instead of a DJ. 
Um, and some people want to have good food. Some people, you know, I think everybody wants to have good food. It's just hard to do. Um, but, you know, I think it's the same way with restaurants is you have to, you have to have a priority. It's, there's very few restaurants that can do everything. Um, and so you have to have a concept. You have to, you have to figure out what's important to you. Um, but you also have to realize that you're bringing together a lot of people with a lot of different um, points of view, a lot of taste buds. And so it's really not all about you. It's not just what you want to serve. It's like it, you're cooking for people. And so you have to make things that are delicious. Um, for me, I want food that is beautiful. So when you see it, you say, this is the food I want to eat. This looks healthy. This is good. Um, this looks like something that I might not be able to make in my, my own home. Um, so it has to be a little special, and um, at least in, in the work that I do. Um, but it, it, you have to be focused on that it is for someone else, that you're not creating the food for yourself. One of the things I really, um, when we were talking over lunch, is that you were saying how a lot of uh, people, because Untitled is located inside the Whitney, you get a lot of diverse mix of people from around the country, and sometimes they're not used to the New York price tag, just like you weren't when you went to Lupa. Um, how do you address that at Untitled, and how do you make sure that when they walk away, they still feel like, wow, the food was really worth it? It's a challenge. It really <laughs> is. <laughs> Um, you know, I think uh, we're always mindful of, I work within Union Square Hospitality Group, and, and something that I've been taught as I've come along is we want, we want to have value. We want, um, we want diners to come in and to eat and to say, like, hey, that was worth it, and that wasn't too much money to spend. Um, but it is a restaurant, and there are certain, um, you know, costs that go into to running a restaurant. So the food might not be as cheap as, as you were eating at home, but, um, but at the same time, I hope that what we're providing is a, is not just a service of someone needing a meal, but it's something that, you know, nourishes your soul that, that makes you feel, um, you know, creative and makes you feel good and allows you to have a communal meal with someone. Um, so I think, I think it's, it's tough because of the Whitney, there are, like you said, there's so many guests from all over the world. And, um, the cost of food and the cost of restaurants all across the world is very different. And so in everybody's mind, they have a different price point of what they'll pay for chicken or what they'll pay for a salad. Um, and so it's our job to create a menu that, that, um, th that we're able to pay our vendors, our farmers, our purveyors the right amount of money. We're able to take care of them. We're able to take care of our staff and then also take care of the guests without, you know, charging too high prices. Um, and sometimes people get it and sometimes people don't. But I feel like if our team of cooks puts up food that um, looks great, that tastes really good, that's carefully cooked, that people will understand um, why they're paying prices in New York, um, you know, like this. And there's that concept of putting out food that is so great that people will ask questions about it. Sure. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that and how you select the produce so that when people see it, they're like, oh, wow, this was special. Sourcing is a really important thing. And we actually have um, a position on our team, uh, um, purchasing manager, Jenny Jones, and she um, worked with me at Gramercy Tavern and then here at Untitled. And um, it's her job to make sure that we are finding the best ingredients and that we're paying attention to who we're buying from, what their practices are, who they are. You know, we love we love knowing our, our vendors intimately. Um, we love having dinners with them. We we um, we, we want to to feel good about the food that we put on our plate. Um, and so that's a, a big part of it is the actual before it even gets to the restaurant. Where does it come from? So that that's a big part of what we do. Um, and then it, it's, you know, I talked to the cooks this week. 
it's it's our job as cooks and chefs to put food on the table that the guests ask questions about. So um, we have an open kitchen. It's beautiful. We get to talk to a lot of the a lot of the guests, which is very uncommon in a normal kitchen. Um, and so we can tell stories. We can talk about where produce comes from, but we don't talk to everybody in the restaurant by any means. Um, but everybody in the restaurant eats our food. So it's our responsibility to, to put food on the plate um, that the guest is surprised by, crap, I've never tasted a carrot like this, or I didn't realize that um, something like this could have so much flavor, or how did you make this? Um, so it's, it's important for us to wow the guest and make them ask the question of where did this come from? Um, why is this like this? And, and to be able to generate conversations that way. And I mean, this this gets to one of the, I, in my mind, at least one of the central uh, challenges of running a restaurant. It's good sourcing, uh, paying your employees fair wages, which is something that you and and Unisquare Hospitality Group have have spoken very publicly about. Um, but then also, uh, you know, serving food that that's accessible, at least at least in a <laughs> within a spectrum. Um, so how do you find the balance between all of those often conflicting interests, the ways that you want to run a restaurant, the ways that, that the expectations that your customers might have? Sure. I think there are, um, you have to be smart. And I think in the past, um, and even the perception now is that a chef comes into the restaurant and they, you know, make the, all the food and they, you know, run the team and then they put the food out and then they go home. And that is so far from what a chef's job is today. And I don't know if that extends to all restaurants, but my guess is most of them. Um, it's our job to make sure our labor costs are right, to make sure that we're hiring the right people to, um, to do volunteer opportunities with our community. It's not just our job to, to make the food and put it out anymore. Um, and that's not good enough. And so, um, as a chef, you really have to learn balance. And, and again, it's that same idea as what's important to you. And if the sourcing is important, that mostly means that your ingredients are much more expensive than if sourcing is not important to you. Um, and so uh, there's ways that we work around it. But one of the things is just being really mindful of what we call food cost in the kitchen and, um, and understanding on a dish how much does each ingredient cost, how much of each ingredient are you putting on a plate. Um, and it's a little bit about balance. Sometimes if you have, if you want to serve, um, you know, scallops, you can't serve them with um, you know, another ingredient that's super expensive. We buy this amazing uh, wild rice um, from the Midwest, and it's a, a couple that hand harvests it, and it's it's a really great product, but it's um, it costs as much as fish does. <laughs> it costs as much as the scallops do almost. And so it is, you know, people don't think about that, but but you have to be able to, to do things like balance your dishes so, um, so you're able to serve the food you want to serve, um, you know, on the menu. So being a, a math graduate, does, <laughs> does that come in, come in handy? I'm not really great with numbers. I, I, count, I count on my fingers a lot, that kind of thing. But I, I do, I have the, the part of math that I really like is that logic and that puzzles. So like, unfortunately I hate, but I also love scheduling, um, like, uh, for, for cooks. And then I also, you know, the thing, the puzzles of like, how do, how do you make the numbers work is, is really interesting to me. And, and you can do it. It's just, um, again, like sometimes you have to cut back in one area to be able to, um, put forth on another side. Yeah. A big part of that is also making sure, um, everyone on your team is really bought into what you're doing and everyone is part of the mission. So how do you, uh, foster that kind of culture in your kitchen, making sure that, you know, when that you're, you can't be directly micromanaging everyone. So even when they're working autonomously, they're like, oh, okay, I know that there's food costs here that I need to be aware of and I'm committed to this restaurant to make sure that happens. 
Uh, one thing we do is we do a lot of staff education, um, kind of showing off like what are these ingredients so people know like, oh, well, this is important. This is this is special. This is not something that everybody works with. So sometimes it's that. Sometimes it's de- demoing. How do you cut a vegetable? Like how do you do it with no waste? If you have a little trim, what do we do it with it? Do we make a puree with it? Do we make family meal with it? Um, trying to use um, you know the whole product. Um, so sometimes it's just that. Um, uh, sometimes it's just, um, you know, I'll give a little shout out to the Good Food 100 survey, uh, which we just took part in from, for 2018. And um, it, it's, a, it's a survey that, um, that really talks about um, sustainability and good sourcing and, um, you know, where are you buying your food. And it's a voluntary survey that this year about 125 restaurants across the country took, took part in. Um, and we were lucky enough. Well, I don't know, lucky. We, I guess, we've been we've been working towards it, but to to be um, the highest on the survey in in terms of all the different areas um, uh, that they're measuring. But it, a lot of it is is again like where are you buying your your food from? And uh, so we were talking to the cooks about it so that they understand. Um, you know, what are we doing here? You know, and I told them, I said, I don't know, like when you first, because we have a, a pretty large staff, I said, I don't know if everybody, um, when you came here, if if you came here because of our sourcing practices or because we buy, you know, some people do, um, but the whole team definitely didn't. But I, I said, I hope that when you, when you saw the dishes being plated, when you, when you started learning that something in your mind said, oh, I, I'm here and I'm, I'm like, the one who has to be the one to take care of the food. And so it's our job to kind of keep that awareness within our, our staff high so that they're understanding like why we're doing what we're doing. I'm not just teaching you how to cook, cook a piece of fish. I'm teaching you like, where do we get this from? You know, how do you clean it? How do you, how do you take care of it so that we're using the most of it? And if you have trim, what are you going to do with it? Um, and so I think it is like, it has to be a whole mindset of the team. It can't just be top down. Let's uh, let's step back uh, a second and talk about the transition that you made from uh, a job in human resources after college into culinary school and then to work in restaurants. Uh, where did that come from? As if you you were a kid who didn't like to cook and now you run a, a restaurant in New York City. How did that How did that happen? When I worked at the Waldorf, um, I was there about two years, and I had a great team that I worked with, a really amazing boss. And This was in human resources yeah. at the Waldorf. <laughs> yeah, yeah there's, there's nice people in HR. Don't worry. <laughs> no, no, that wasn't. Just clarifying, not in the kitchen. Yeah, not in the kitchen. Um, and um, I really I really liked the hospitality um, industry, and I, I just didn't know anything about it until I was working in that job. And I liked what we were doing. I liked um, the busyness of it. Um, I just didn't love the paperwork. And so in HR, you can't really get around all that paperwork. And so I was kind of looking for what was the next step. And um, there were a few things that, I guess, pushed me towards culinary school. Um, one of them was I started working in one of the restaurants at the Waldorf in the steakhouse. And um, it was kind of like part-time along with my other job and kind of liked it. And I thought maybe maybe I want to go towards restaurant management instead of HR. Um, in hotels. Um, but at the same time, uh, uh, one of the women in our office uh, started going to ICE um, for recreational classes and baking. So she would, it was like once a week for a couple months, and she would come in bringing all these like 
amazing like cakes and pies and things and I you know she would tell us about it and I I didn't even know that there were cooking schools in New York (laughs) I had no idea that that was a thing that people went to cooking school Um, and so I started getting interested in kind of like know on on the side researching what those look like because I don't know if at the beginning I was thinking about taking a recreational class or if I was just interested um and then I had some friends um outside of work who were in the creative field actors and they were always pushing me towards doing something more creative with my with my life and so I started you know doing writing and you know reading and um the the topic that kept coming back was cooking, which again was a little weird since I, I um, had never really um, spent any time or really an interest in cooking in the past. And um, and so just kind of a series of those things and being young and being in New York and having all these people around you and going to restaurants. And so I decided to take a tour of ICE um, and again, like I'd never seen a professional looking kitchen. I didn't know there were shiny pots and big stoves and um, and I ended up deciding that I wanted to, um, I wanted to go and, uh, it was a tough decision and I had a good job and my family <laughs> who's so far away were happy with my good stable job and not, not so excited about, you know, this murky unknown territory, but that's how I kind of took that first step towards cooking. And did you know you always wanted to go into restaurants during culinary school or how did you find that path? Well, I've always been competitive, so I <laughs> I always choose the the path that feels like there's something to learn, there's something to prove, and so I think re- restaurants were the only thought in my mind. Um, and again, I didn't know if I would like them, so I just was going to give it a try. Um, but yeah, it for me, restaurants are the place that you learn the most, you get to see the most, and um, even if people don't end up in restaurants or that's not their end goal, I just I always feel like it's it's the right move, at least to start off with. Well, we're going to take a short break, but we'll be back in about two minutes with more on Suzanne's story. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. We're back. We're here with Suzanne Cups, who is the executive chef at Untitled. And we're talking about uh, how you go from not liking to cook to being the executive chef at Untitled, which seems like an a, a uncommon career path. <laughs> um, so yeah, tell us some of the challenges that you had in your early days in restaurants. After graduating from culinary school, you, you went to work at uh, Gramercy Tavern and then Anissa, which are both 
pretty demanding restaurants to work in, very high standards. And what was hard for you in those in those early days in the kitchen? I think just getting used to the profession is tough. The hours and the standing on your feet all day. I love it, um, but it's also it's 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 uh, tiring on your body. It's a it's a lot of focus the whole day. Um, you know, there, there's so many challenges. Just the, but I feel like the one that was the toughest is just that that daily stress of getting set up on time. Because <laughs> in my life, I've never been quick <laughs> in terms of like uh, you know I'm from the south so I move a little slower sometimes than other people now now not as much that I've been in New York for so long but I'm also a perfectionist and so um, I always wanted all my mise en place all my vegetables all my knife cuts all my sauces to be exactly right and so I didn't rush through a lot and um, so that constant challenge of um, you know, if dinner started at 5.30, that constant challenge of being set up at 5.30 was a daily stress. Um, and it's still something that, um, you know, speed is not the name the name of my game. I am definitely, I like to get things right and, and redo things if they're not right. And, um, and so that was, I guess, probably one of the biggest challenges. All, you know, to be honest, all the work I liked, I... You know the cooks kind of make fun of me now, but I'm like, here, let me mince your chives, let me cut, <laughs> let me broom all this, let me let me make this. There's almost nothing in the kitchen that I don't like to do, and um, so I don't know if that was, you know, the challenge of learning new techniques and not not having any of those skill sets or not understanding uh, where they come from because I wasn't versed in a lot of chefs or restaurants or, um, you know, I didn't study a lot about the the history of cooking. Um, so sometimes when someone would say, like, make a burblanc, and then you'd be like, you know, <laughs> deer in headlights, like, what is that? Like, how do I do that? I did that once in culinary uh-huh. school. Like, those kind of, um, you know, moments came along. But as long as, you know, I was really lucky to work for Anita Lowe and then uh, Mike Anthony, and both of them were about teaching. And so, you know, even if you felt like that, like, nervousness or that, like, a little embarrassment of I don't know what this is, that that's their job and that's what they were there to do was to teach me how to how to cook and um and so I I feel like um you know my my learning path was just you know pretty I I learned a lot put it that way um as you ascended from you know being having to execute a lot on time you still have to do that but also (laughs) being able to have more say over the menu um creating your new menus now just um like having to tap into more of your creativity, what was that process like, and how did you slowly learn that? Um, creativity was one of the hardest things for me. I'm 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 really good at um, following along. I'm really good at picking up um, cues from my bosses and those around me. So, if someone made a dish, I could make the dish. I could, you know I could plate it like they did. I could cook it like they did. Um, but when I started to having to try to make my own dishes, um, that was really hard because um, again I didn't have any background of like what I liked to cook when I was younger. I didn't have any of those experiences. So all I knew how to cook was what my, what the chef of the restaurant had cooked for me, you know, or shown me what to do. I didn't really know how to, to make food on my own. And so I really struggled with that. Uh, when I, I worked at Gramercy for about a year as a cook and, uh, before I became a sous chef and, um, as a sous chef, you're just expected to, to work on dishes and to, to make dishes for the menu. And, um, you know, Mike would tell me like, why don't you try to make this dish with beef and potatoes and carrots or, you know, and we would talk through it and he would kind of tell me and 
I would like make the exact dish that we talked about, you know, <laughs> just make it exactly. And then he would be like, no, nah, that's not right. <laughs> no, I'm like, I just did exactly what you told me. <laughs> and it, it was just that, you know, when you're creating dishes, you have to pull things from different places, either that you've learned or that you've thought about or you studied. Um, and I didn't have those experiences. I didn't know where to start. It, there's a lot that goes into creativity um, and creating a dish. There's, you know, all the ingredients that you're working with and the techniques that each of them go to get. And how, do, how do they tie together? And how do you put it on a plate in a way that looks presentable, especially when you're, look, when you're working in a fine dining restaurant? And so I just struggled and I tried to make a couple dishes and they just never really turned out right. And so Mike, um, we sat down one day and he said, um, you know what, I've been thinking about, I want to have a, uh, a new dish on the menu every, every week at Gramercy uh, so that our regulars, when they come in, they always have something new to try. So he's like, I want to start a soup program and I want you to you <laughs> run the soup program. Yes. So I didn't really like soups that much, <laughs> you know, like a clam chowder maybe. But, um, and so every week I would make a soup. And we would have a sous chef meeting, so all the managers in, in, in the back of house would get together, and I would present the soup to them, and they would eat it, and they would have, like, 50 suggestions. Like, why don't you do this? Why don't you do this? More garnish. More, more of this. Why don't you do this? And, okay. I took all the notes, and then I would, like, remake it and present it again. And, um, and then after it was right, this is all in, you know, a week with all your other jobs that you're doing. And then, um, then you would have to make a recipe cause you know, we were busy. So we would make 22 quarts of soup for Monday for lunch. And I was the, the lunch sous chef, the AM sous chef. And, um, so I would have to make the 22 quart recipe and then I have to teach the cooks how to make it. Um, this was Monday. And then by Thursday you would have to have a new soup for next week. And then the process would start over and over again. And. <laughs> Man, those first few months were tough because it was just like I could never. It wasn't that I wasn't getting it right. It was just it was hard. You know, there's a lot of personalities in the room, a lot of a lot of people that are judging your food, and when you're still like new, learning how to do it, it was hard. Um, but the one great thing about soups is they all go in a bowl, and so there's no <laughs> plating. So that was one thing that we that he took out of the equation for me, which was great. And so. By the time, I mean, by the time a year, year and a half passed, I could make soups in my sleep. I didn't have to test them out. I would just like write the recipe, make one, it would be done. And so it was, it was definitely one of those things that um, uh, allowed me to, to learn how to create and for like a little safer of a way. What know? was the favorite soup that you made? Oh, um, <laughs> you know, one I still, it's coming into fall, one I still like that I made was um, a celery root and apple soup. So celery root is, you know, people are like, ah, oh, what's that? But it's actually pretty tasty, and it, it tastes a lot like potato, but a little lighter. Um, and the apple gives it a lot of acidity, and it's great for this time of year. Um, I think we've done it with, like, lobster and watermelon radish and, you know, celery and all kinds of things like that. But it, it was a great soup. And, and another, like, twist that Mike put in it is he, he always liked to... Um, uh, you know, show off the, the produce and not necessarily put a lot of dairy or, you know, we didn't make a lot of roux or, or flowers in it. And so we really wanted to to make the soups very pure with vegetables. And and, um, and so I learned how to make a lot of soups with um, without dairy, without um, flour. And it's, it's actually a technique I use a lot at Untitled now. And it's great because every other table has a gluten allergy, a dairy <laughs> yeah. allergy. And, and it's not just, um, 
being able to cook for allergies, it's also like really great to show up. And now it tastes like celery root and apple. It doesn't taste like anything else. It tastes like the, the true vegetable, which is a, is a cool way to cook. Were there any uh, soup recipes that that fell flat that really oh, totally. didn't work? What, what were some of the, the 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 ones that you remember as being particularly weird? Well, th- there were definitely a lot that didn't work out. But it, this is actually the one that comes to mind first was not a soup, but it was a it was I wanted to make a, this after I was making soup for a while, so I felt good. So I was back to making <laughs> other dishes as well, and so I I wanted to make a new chicken dish, and so we we. Uh, I cooked this chicken and I, I made like a smoked onion puree and um, I think it must have been like spraying. I had some um, some fresh English peas and like some glazed carrots and pea shoots and I presented the dish to Mike and I told him my inspiration was a chicken pot pie <laughs> and those were all the flavors. He could not get past that and <laughs> the idea of the chicken pot pie was just like not what he was looking for on his menu and so it was... I learned that it's not just about how food tastes and looks, but it's also the story behind the food. And if you're drawing stories from inspiration that, um, you know, isn't necessarily what we want to talk about to our guests and the people around us, like, you know, it, it, it's hard to connect all those dots um, to, to present the right, in this case, dish. But so it is a little bit about learning how, not just how do you, um, put food on a plate. How do you make it go together? But how do you talk about the food? And that was a big lesson for me of, okay, let me let me figure out a better story to tell with this dish. As you are absorbing all the feedback for your soup programs, um, obviously like tons of people are saying this and that, and sometimes there's conflicting, conflicting feedback as well. Now that you um, run the whole menu, and I'm sure you get tons of feedback from your customers on Yelp, on um, food, like, food critics, how do you deal with that? And how do you stay true to like, what you want to cook versus what other people want you to cook? Well, I think, you know, I've definitely become a more confident chef. So I already, I know now what flavors go together, what Mm -hmm. techniques work a lot better than I did then. So it's actually easy. And I really love creating. And, um, you know, there are reviews and there are things that make you say like, oh, maybe I should taste this dish again. And, And I think those are good because sometimes, you know, it's not, again, it's not me making the food every day. I'm handing this over to a team of sous chefs and cooks that are, that are, are creating these dishes and making them every day. And so sometimes that, that if someone says something's bland, you know, and I'll go taste it because a lot of times that means there's not enough salt. And, um, so I, I feel like, um, you know, we just put, we just switched over that menu about a, a month and a half ago, um, to our new small plates menu. And, and, I was sitting with my boss, Danny Meyer, and we were talking about the new menu and he was tasting everything. And, and I said, you know, when these, these 25 new dishes go on all at once, that's a hard thing to do is teach cooks how to, to, to make 25 really great dishes and not all of them are going to be great. You know, there, there'll be three or four that don't work out or that, you know, we're not happy with. And I think that's just like, that's just food. That's just, you know, the, that's being a chef is, putting yourself out there, trying new things that you're not sure that's going to work and seeing what the response is. But I think once you have the foundation of um, understanding the techniques a little bit better and working with really great, um, great ingredients, I think it makes it much easier. But there's definitely, you know, always something that, that it didn't work out or you didn't love as much as you thought it would. Uh, I also want to ask about like your teaching style now that you do have to manage a team and you have to, you know, turn over a lot of the cooking to them. How do you make sure that they're executing on what what you've taught them time and time again as you bring on, you know, new cooks and new prep cooks, making sure that they understand your vision and are executing it to your standards. 
Um, I think teaching is pretty much the number one job as a chef. It's it's really um, taking time. It, it takes patience. Um, it takes um, maybe saying the same thing over and over again a few times. Um, showing is a lot of, for me, the way I teach is um, hands-on by showing. Um, I really, I don't love um, making f- cooks feel like, um, embarrassed or, um, you know, cause they're not doing something right. I feel like if a cook's not doing something right, it's because I haven't, I haven't shown them right or I haven't spent enough time working with them. And it's, I think it's really on the, the, those kind of situations. Um, the pressure's on the, the people that teach. It's not on the people that are learning. Now, having said that, like not all cooks can pick things up. And so, you know, some people are naturally more inclined to, to pro- progress in this industry, but, um, but I, I do think that the teaching has to, um, it has to be constant. And so there's a t- the way I teach during service, which is um, a little bit maybe shorter and faster than maybe what I would teach um, during prep time. Um, because service is, um, service, it's important to stay on track and to get things out right. And I don't really want um, the, the cook's learning experience to, to fall on the guest. I don't want because a cook doesn't know how to cook something properly yet, um, I don't want the guests to suffer and their their dish not be good. So sometimes that means stepping in during service and making the food yourself or some dishes um, and showing on the line. Um, and then outside of service, being able to say, okay, here's what I saw and hey, let's try this again. Let's practice this. And, and um, you know, I think there's more time for that explaining outside of service, but during service, it's just kind of getting it right and and some people have that ability where they can just watch it one time and say, oh, I got it. And some people just, you, they need to be shown every day. And that's just, I think that's, um, it's a fun part of the job is being able to see what well, it is. It's yeah. fun when, when you see someone, you're like, they're never going to get it. And then they get it, you know, eventually. Yeah. It's, it's I just, I laugh, I laugh that you call it one of the most fun parts <laughs> of the job. Because I think that's, that's something that a lot of chefs, executive chefs really struggle with is that teaching element. And one of the reasons that, a lot of restaurants have a, a pretty intense and occasionally toxic environment in the kitchens because yeah. chefs often have moved up through the ranks maybe because they're really good cooks, but right. not necessarily yeah. because they're good teachers or, or good managers. Um, so I, I get how have you like, how are you such a good teacher when other people are not, or how have how have you managed to to maintain and and build those skills when a lot of people are not able to in, in this industry. I think what you said is true. It, like a lot of chefs are just naturally good, and not that they don't work hard to get where they are. That's not it. But a lot of a lot of uh, folks that become chefs are just naturally talented in this industry. And I wasn't. And I think that's you know that's part of the the reason is because I had to learn by being taught in this way. Um, I wasn't in a kitchen where I was just expected to know how to make something. I was shown how to do it, and I was explained why you, why you do it that way. And I think for me, that's the way that I learn the best. And it's also it's not over explaining because I think you know some people tend to it's not hand holding and coddling and you know just talking to your blue in the face. It's really about. Um, as quickly and as efficiently as possible passing on all the information because there's so many things going on in the kitchen, so many dishes, so many things to learn that you can't really focus on one thing for too long. And, you know, at Entitled, we've tried to make it um, a pretty open environment where there's room for different techniques. So sometimes in a kitchen, there's just a wrong way to do something. Sometimes (laughs) it's just not right. But 
a lot of times there's like more than two ways to cook a piece of fish or to, to grill something. And so I'm happy to look at different ways and then decide what's the best way for us. Like what makes the most sense technically what's, you know, you know, what's the right thing and what goes with the dish. And so I'm happy and to, to kind of look at those things, but, um, you know, teaching, it doesn't have to, it, it doesn't mean that you have a weak kitchen because you stop to teach. It, it means that, you know, hopefully your team will come along with you and get stronger um, and become even better than you one day um, if you take the time to, to stop. But again, like if, if people didn't grow up in a kitchen that way or, or that's not the way that they learn, it's, it's tough. It's, you know, it's a lot of my personality um, in, in the way that I teach and in the way I run the kitchen. And what are you looking for when you are hiring people to making sure that they not only will contribute to the atmosphere that you're trying to cultivate, but also actively like, you know, listen and grow into what you want them to be? Yeah, when you're when you're when you're hiring, I think it's really important to have those conversations of like, um, you know, what their expectations are, what they want to bring to this 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 restaurant. And um and it has to be focused on like I want that restaurant to succeed. I want I want to learn, but I want to make this restaurant really great. And those are the type of people we're looking for is people that, you know, they have to get their station set up sure, but I want them to be looking around at the same time and seeing is there someone else that's far farther in the weeds than I am and I need to stop for a second and, and go help them out first. Um, so that we're all set up on time or so that the food goes out at the correct time and so I'm looking for people that are able to, um, they're a little heads up. They, they want to see the team succeed, not just themselves. And also, um, you know, people that, um, you know, care about where they are. And I think that's, that's part of it. Are you, are you hiring right now? Yes, please. <laughs> no, we're looking for a couple good cooks. Yeah, we're about to hit a, a busy season. And so we, we definitely are looking for um, a few cooks. And, you know, I'm, I'm indifferent whether someone is is has gone to culinary school or, or hasn't or has worked in you know for years in the industry or not um you know they just have to be open to to learning different ways and and um you know in in our environment they have to be teachable i guess so listeners who are yeah, been looking did. for an excuse <laughs> to uh to quit their their non-food day job and make the transition maybe yeah. this is a good time to try it how do you feel about trails and externships like what should people aspiring culinary students, current culinary students be looking for in that experience? Um, I think trails are really important and we love having anybody come and trail. <laughs> um, not like people that aren't even necessarily looking for jobs. Um, I think it's just really interesting um, to to bring people in and show them what we do and, and have them taste food. Um, so I love having trails, definitely. And then um, interns and externs and um, I, I think it's great and I, we're, we're excited about having um, externs for two reasons. Number one, it's 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 good labor for us. You know, <laughs> um, it's great. Everybody in the restaurant it contributes to the menu and and helps us get to our end goal, which is you know getting the food up and getting it in the way we like it on time. Um, so having externs is really helpful to our business, but also um, it's great for us to to even have the ability to teach more people what we do. It's great for the cooks to have, um, you know, new people in the industry that they can share the things that they've learned with. So it's not just me teaching everybody, but uh, they're able to pass along, um, you know, how we do things at Untitled. 
Um, Suzanne, it's been such a pleasure having you here. Thanks for, for joining us today. Um, maybe mention one more time where the restaurant is and, sure. and how people can, can come taste your food. Uh, we're Untitled Restaurant. Uh, we're on Gansevoort Street in the Whitney Museum. Um, and we're open seven days a week, lunch and dinner. Um, so I hope you come by, please. What uh, What should we order? When we, um, oh, get the... Uh, <laughs> we, we have a, Today we have a... Uh, Montauk black sea bass poke. That's excellent. Um, and hmm, maybe the uh, the special today, uh, uh, grilled striped bass with broccolini and a banyacata. Wow. Mm. Sounds awesome. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much. And as always, please uh, send us comments, questions, thoughts um, at our email, whyfood at heritage. Um, and uh, you can find us on Instagram at Why Food Podcast. Suzanne, where do we find you on social? Uh, our restaurant is at uh, Untitled NYC, and mine is at Suzy Cups, S U Z Y C U P P S. And uh, I'm Ethan Frisch. You can find me via my spice company, Burlap and Barrel, at Burlap and Barrel. Uh, and you can find me on Instagram and Facebook at, at Chef Jenny Dorsey. Thank you so much to our, um, we are sad to report that one of our sound engineers has left the Heritage family, but um, today we have Victor. So thank you so much, Victor, for doing all the sound today. And uh, our theme song, which is uh, Blind by the Red Crickets. Join us next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Well, that's history.